welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. Well, good evening, everyone. If you have your Bibles, why don't you open to Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38. It was beautiful that, you know, we were, I was, um, as we were worshiping tonight, uh, that song, Above All, it's really the theme of tonight's message. Above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man. You were here before the world began. Just his majesty, his, his uh, omniscience, his omnipotence, his, his wonder, the wonder of God. And as we, as we dig into this next uh, chapter tonight, we're going to see God continuing here to reveal himself more and more to Job and to us. And he does it in a, in a way that, you know, we already discussed the last time we were together that God is going to ask Job 70-some-odd questions, rhetorical questions, questions that Job can't answer, um, just to show who he is. And that's what God wants. He wants to reveal himself. You know, it's such an awesome thing that we worship a God who wants us to know him, really know who he is. I mean, it's the pages of the scripture that just come to life in each of our lives. And when he, when he reveals himself to us, we should be, be able to just worship him even more, love him more, because we know him better. Last time, we heard God question Job on the subject of nature. Remember the creation, the stars and the earth and the weather patterns and the majesty that we see in all of those things, God's handiwork just in, in the created natural surroundings that we, that we get to enjoy, that are created for us to enjoy. But we see God's power in that. We see his handiwork in that. Tonight, God will question Job and in, in his questioning reveal himself to us in our understanding of the animal world. And again, there are, I mean, how many different species of animals are there in this world and how many, you know, uh, that we don't even know about, that we, that we can't even name. But remember, all of these questions, these, these whole next few chapters, and as we, we, we can't finish up Job tonight, but we will finish up Job the next time. Um, this has been God's way of getting us to realize his omnipotence, his power, his wisdom, and also to reflect on our own limitations, right? On our own imperfections. Because sometimes we can start to um, think that we're, you know, we have more power, more wisdom than we really do. And those are the, those are the times where we really have to lean on him. We have to yield to God, and this is going to bring perspective, perspective to Job, 
remember, who's been suffering and questioning and doubting and getting bad counsel and, and all of those things that he's been dealing with. This is going to bring true perspective to Job about the world around him and about the circumstances that he finds himself in. And I think we also gain wisdom as we study these accounts and perspective. Perspective to be able to take these things and apply them to the circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in. Because these are written for us so that we can gain wisdom and live in this world with a better perspective. You know, always putting God first and always knowing that even in our suffering, even in our trials, God has a plan and a purpose. So we're going to jump in because we're going to try to get through um, a couple of chapters tonight. So, but at the end of chapter 38, verses 39, we're going to start there. So Job 38, 39. <clears throat> and in the first couple of verses here, it says, Can you hunt the prey for lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lurk in their lairs to lie in wait? Who provides food for the raven? when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food. So God here is going to parade six beasts and five birds before Job for his consideration. And the general question God asks here is, Job, do you know how to care for all of these creatures? So God says, can you hunt the prey for the lion? In other words, Job, can you provide food for the lion? Or who does that, Job? Do you know how to feed the lion's cubs? Do you know how to feed the young ravens, Job? Is there any human being who could provide the needs of all of the animal kingdom? Well, of course the answer is no. God provides that. And of course he puts certain traits in each of the animals, instinctive things that they do to be able to survive in the wild. And then he, he kind of lets them, lets them loose and, uh, and we see how the animal kingdom works because of what God has placed in each and every one of the species. I love Prov- uh, Psalm 145 verse 16 says, You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Well, that about says it, right? God opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. That's all of the animal kingdom, even the flowers and the, and the trees and all of those things that are living, and, and us, and us. He's our provider. He gives us all the things that we need. So obviously it's God alone, God alone who's able to satisfy the needs of these, of these wild animals. And then in verses uh, 1 through 4, jumping to chapter 39, um, he goes on, and God again questioning Job, do you know the time when the wild mountain goats bear young? Or can you mark when the deer gives birth? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Or do you know the time when they bear young? They bow down, they bring forth their young, they deliver their offspring. Their young ones are healthy, they grow strong with grain, they depart and do not return to them. So this is speaking of the 
intricate, complex uh, reproductive systems that God has placed in each animal. You know, and he's asking Job here, do you know the, how long it takes for a mountain goat to bring forth its young? Job, do you know all of that? Can you, can, could you have designed that perfectly? You know, we know that uh, for a human, you know, it's, it's about nine months from conception to birth. But in the animal kingdom, it's different with all different species. But God has designed it perfectly. No human being assists the wild animals in giving birth and in raising their young, yet they still are born and they still survive and they grow. And that's because God has, is taking care of them. You know, we, we see the magnificence of God in these chapters, but we also see His care. It's just his loving care for every single thing that he's ever created. God goes on in these next few verses and asks Job about the animals in the wild who seem uncontrollable, yet they have a signature of God's creativity, of a great designer on them. In verses 5 through 12, God says, Who set the wild donkey free? Who loosed the bonds of the onager? Whose home I have made the wilderness and the barren land his dwelling? He scorns the tumult of the city. He does not heed the shouts of the driver. The range of the mountains is his pasture and he searches every green thing. Will the wild ox be willing to serve you? Will he, be, will he bed by your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in the furrow with, boat, with ropes? Or will he plow the valleys behind you? Will you trust him because his strength is great? Or will you leave your labor to him? Will you trust him to bring home your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? So this poetic way that God is asking Job about all of these things, he's saying, he's saying there, there's some wild animals, uncontrollable really, you know, when you look at them just in their natural habitat, but of course, you try to bring a wild animal in and tame him and, and try to use him as a, you know, as a plow horse or, or someone to, to you know, pull a carriage. And he's not going to listen. He's not going to heed the shouts of the driver because they were made in a certain way. There are certain domesticated animals that are used for those purposes. But there are certain wild animals that, you know, they're just, uh, they're uncontrollable. But God sustains them. God sustains them. He cares for all of his creation. But I think the question for us, too, would be, how much more does he care for you and I? You know, we see his hand upon creation and, you know, the wild animals and all, all that he has, has made, and, and, we, and we wonder, you know, does he care as much for us? But the Bible is pretty clear about that, you know, in several places. But in Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, it says, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Not one of the sparrows is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are 
of more value than many sparrows. As much as we see God's care upon nature, upon wildlife, upon all of his creation, he cares even more for us. See, that's, that's, what we, that's what kind of what we need. We need to know. Isn't it good to know that someone cares? Isn't it good to know that someone cares? And, uh, you know, when, when another human being, when a, when a friend or, or a loved one or your spouse says they care for you, that's a good feeling. But think about the creator of all things saying, you are of more value than anything I've created. You were made in my image. I love you. I want a relationship with you. That's what God is telling us. Next few verses here, God really isn't asking questions as much as as he is pointing out some of the extraordinary features of some of his creation. It says in verses 13 through 17, The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are her wings and pinions like the kindly storks? For she leaves her eggs on the ground and warms them in the dust. She forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may break them. She treats her young harshly as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without concern because God deprived her of wisdom and did not endow her with understanding. Did you know there were about 57 varieties of flightless birds? Now, I didn't know that. I know there were a few flightless birds. The ostrich is a flightless bird. And, I, you know, when I think about, you know, evolution, the evolutionists and, you know, their, their way of trying to explain certain things, and they, you know, they, they'll explain that over the millennia that, you know, that these birds evolved into flightless birds, that their wings were used and now they're no longer used. But God, God seems to express here to Job that he had his own reasons. It says here, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are her, are her wings and pinions like the kindly storks? So the ostrich can wave its wings, but it can't really fly. But God has a purpose in that. God created them for, for a reason. The challenge to us, is to trust, even when things kind of seem out of order, even when things in the natural world seem like they're, they're kind of out of whack, but to trust that God is completely in control. Some birds, most birds, I think, have this innate nurturing nature. You know, we always think of the bird and, the, of course, the, the, the mother bird giving you know, uh, laying the eggs and just nurturing those until they hatch and just being there with the young ones and feeding them. And, you know, we're coming into the time of the year we're going to start seeing the birds, you know, and they may nest in our yard. And, you know, it's neat to look out the window and and watch the mommy take the, you know, the food to the little ones and all. So we see that nurturing uh, kind of characteristic of birds but for some reason, I, I don't know why, it seems like the stork seems to neglect her unhatched eggs. And even after they're born, they tend to kind of neglect them. Uh, but yet they survive. 
God has planned that for some purpose. Not sure why. But I think the unusual habits of some of these uh, some of these animals and birds and other uh, creatures, they're just, they just go to show us the complexity of God. To show us that he, he, first of all, he can't be figured out. He's too big. He's too wise. He's too awesome for us to kind of get a, a real handle on completely. He wants us to know him. But the more we know, we, I think we talked about this last time, the more we know, don't we realize the more we don't know about God? The more, we, the more his, his wisdom and his omnipotence is revealed to us, the more we understand how much there is out there of God that we don't understand. But we see it in, in the natural world. God, in the next few verses, he turns to the horse to show Job the awesome power and wisdom that he used in his creation. In verse 18 through 25, it says, When she lifts herself on high, she scorns the horse and its rider. Have you given the horse strength? Have you clothed his neck with thunder? Can you frighten him like a locust? His majestic snorting strikes terror. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He gallops into the clash of arms. He mocks at fear and is not frightened. <clears throat> Nor does he turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the glittering spear and the javelin. He devours the distance with fierceness and rage. Nor does he come to a halt because the trumpet has sounded. At the blast of the trumpet, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of captains and shouting. So this is not your, your domesticated or your workhorse or your farm horse. This is your military horse that he's talking about here. And you can just, you can just sense the power and the wisdom behind that. He's not frightened. He's, he has strength. Even his snorting strikes terror. And you can, just, you can just see them lining up for battle and how God has created them. Job would have understood the wisdom that there was in the design behind the strength and the ability needed to serve on the battlefield. Because, the, you know, there's... Unlike today where we have our you know, military weapons, our tanks and our, uh, our fighter jets and our battleships and all of that... They fought their battles mainly, you know, on foot or on horseback. And the, the, horse, the horses that were used were mighty, mighty creatures. But Job and us would also have to admit that it was only God who could have created such a courageous and powerful animal. I mean, the descriptions in those verses are, are awesome, Really. And we just see God's hand upon it. God now ends this parade of animals with two powerful birds, the hawk and the eagle, in verses 26 through 30. It says, Does the hawk fly by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle mount up at your command and make its nest on high? On the rock it dwells and resides, on the crag of the rock and the stronghold. From there it spies out its prey, its eyes observe from afar. 
Its young ones suck up blood. Where the slain are, there it is. So God now questioning Job about the amazing instincts of these two powerful birds, the hawk and the eagle. They build their nests in the high cliffs, right? And they migrate each year. The migration patterns of birds are amazing. They really are. (coughs) We mostly see, you know, the, um, the Canada geese migrating. We mostly see some of the other birds when the robin starts to appear. We say, oh, well, spring is on its way. But some birds migrate for thousands of miles each year from different climates. And God has put that instinctively into the animals. He's put it instinctively for the hawks and the eagles to, to put their, make their nests high up in the cliffs so they can have this vantage point to see where their prey is. To, to look over the lay of the land, to know where to get their next meal. And he's given them beauty. He's given them wisdom. And we attribute that, we have to attribute that to God. But I think many people don't. I think many people talk about, you know, nature. They talk about the universe as, as if the universe was some some type of powerful being behind all the things that happen naturally around us. They don't give God the glory. They don't give God the credit for what He does. I think it reminds me of Romans chapter 1 in verses 20 through 22 where it says, For since the creation of the world, His, God's, invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. People are without excuse. They look around, they see nature, they see the beauty, they see the powerful beasts, they see the the instincts of the birds and the other animals. They see how how God is placed into them, how to survive in the wilderness. And yet, they don't give God the glory. They don't attribute this to God. Verse 21 says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. I think the more we try to explain the things in this world, the more foolish we sound, the more foolish we become. Instead of giving God the glory, giving Him the, the credit for creation and for putting all of these things together, the complexity of the animal kingdom, not to mention human beings in creation, is amazing. And we, we would do right to give God uh, the, the glory and the honor in that. Chapter 40. Now, we're going to start to see Job's first response to God. We're going to start to see Job, and it's not a very, it's a pretty weak response, honestly. But God's going to, uh, going to challenge him one more time in verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to we hear from Job. And it says, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? 
He who rebukes God, let him answer it. So, God here is giving Job one last opportunity to kind of present his case before him and correct any of God's mistakes. Now, I wouldn't take that challenge up. You know, no, God, I think you're wrong here and here. I'm not sure if you got this quite right. You know, for three chapters or so, we've been hearing from God, explaining, describing who he is. Asking Job if he could do any of these things. And now he gives Job one more, one more chance. If, did, is anything that I said, Job, wrong over these last few chapters? Is there anything here that you need to correct, Job? Answer me. Are you trying to instruct me, Job? God is asking. And, you know, we can kind of chuckle, get a chuckle out of that, but, and think it's ridiculous. But I think to myself and I say, well, I've tried to instruct God in my own life in the past. There have been times where I've kind of said, God, this is what I think you should do in this situation. God, these are my plans. Uh, Just kind of sign at the bottom and uh, we'll be good. Just bless bless my plans, God. I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to show you what's best for me. How many of us have done that? I think we've all, we're all probably guilty of that a little bit. And then what happens when our plans don't work out? Who do we blame? <laughs> we blame God. God, why did you let that happen? And I can hear, you know, maybe this is my imagination, God saying, well, you told me that that's what you wanted. Sometimes God allows us in our folly to follow through on the plans that we have just to show us that you weren't, you weren't asking me what my plans were for you and that. You weren't asking me what, what, how I would work through this situation in your life. You were telling me. Well, that's when we need to, what, repent, right? And say, sorry, I'm sorry, God. You know, and then, and then just, just go back and know that, listen, God always has the best for us. He always knows what's best. Most times, we don't know what's best for ourselves. We try, but a lot of times we just don't know. So, God gave Job an, op- an opportunity here, and believe me, Job is not going to try to correct God. He's not going to do that. But in verses 3 through 5, we hear from Job. And it says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. Probably the smartest thing he's ever said. I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no more. God, I had a lot to say before. But now, when, as you've revealed yourself, as you've revealed your character to me, 
as, you sh- as you've shown me, God, through, even through the trial, even through the situation that I'm in, I understand who you are. I'm not going to say a word. Remember at the very beginning when, jo- when Job's friends came and didn't say a word, and that was the wisest counsel that they could give him? Same thing with Job. Job says, I'm going to put my hand over my mouth now, God. I'm done speaking. I spoke before. I tried it again, but now I'm going to proceed no further. How can I answer you, God? How could I? Why could I? Why should I? Why would I rebuke you? Why would I try to correct you, God? Why would I try to say, God, why did you allow this to happen in my life? God, you must have made a mistake. I'm a righteous person. Why would I have to go through all this suffering? Well, Job says, no, that's enough. I've thought it. I've said it. I've, I've had counselors that have told me that I'm, a, that I'm a sinner. I've had counselors tell me things that were not correct in your, in your counsel, God. No more. So Job finally realized that even as the words were coming out of his mouth that he really didn't have an answer. What can we say? What can we say to God? So in that case, it's like the old saying, it's better to remain silent and let people think you're a fool than to speak and to remove all doubt. Because there have been times when Job has just been foolish in some of the things he said. But now he's, he's done. But remember, for, even for us and you know, for, for Job, he, he's moving towards this place of repentance. He's getting closer. He's, getting, he's, he's understanding more that he really doesn't have an answer for what God is doing in his life. And he would be better just receiving from the Lord, just understanding that God has a plan in it. But he's not quite there. He's, he's, at, he's at the point of silence now, which is a good start. He's no longer trying to, trying to plead his case. He's no longer trying to bring evidence to prove him righteous. But he's not quite yet submitting to God. But he's close. He's moving in that direction. Sometimes we think we can, we can justify ourselves, right? Plead our case before God in our own defense. But sometimes, most times, I think our best option would be rather to just remain silent and submit to his will because it's always the best. Allow him to kind of draw us back because with a loving arm, he'll do that. As, as the example in the prodigal story shows that that father ran to meet his son and, and kissed him around the neck and, and brought him in. God is ready to take us back, to draw us back to him. But it's that submission, it's that humility, right, that we need to have that will allow that to happen. The next few verses here, God is again going to start to ask Job some questions. He's, he's asking Job if he's able to prove God wrong. 
And we're going to see that, again, Job has no, has no answer. Verses 6 through 14 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like his? Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and array yourself with glory and beauty. Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will confess to you that your own right hand can save you. God's saying, if you can do all of those things, Job, which really are all of the characteristics of what God does, right? right? He, he has a voice like thunder, right? He, he's righteous in his judgments. He puts down the, the, proud, the proud, right? He brings them low. He eventually will deal with the wicked. Even if he doesn't in this life, he will in the next But God says, okay, Job, if you can do all of those things, then I'll confess to you that you can even save yourself, Job. Now, I don't know about you. I don't want to try to save myself. I don't want to try to save myself. I know I'm incapable of that. I'm unable to do that. I know I'm unable to sometimes get myself out of my own problems. That I, that I get into due to my own fault. And so why would I want to try to save myself? You know, throughout, throughout the book, Job, we see Job trying to vindicate himself, right? Trying to, try to claim his righteousness and, and try to set, set him, his uh, integrity before him. But now he just has to sit and he has to listen to the Lord. You know, God asks these questions. He, you, can, you can see that, there's, you know, it, that they can't be answered. And of course, Job will never be able to do all of these things that God does. Never will God confess to him that he could save himself. That's never going to happen. But this is God's gentle chastening, right? It's his gentle rebuke on Job. You know, Hebrews 12 tells us in verses 6 through 9, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? You know, we, we, are, we have, have all had someone in authority over us, whether a parent or a boss, or if you're in the military, a commanding officer, of whom we had to subject to, and give respect to, and sometimes receive rebuke from, and chastening from. And we've given them that respect. 
that they deserve. And we recognize that. That's proper. But do we give God the respect when, when He chastens us, when He rebukes us, when He gives us a trial that has a lesson in it? Do we still give Him the honor and the respect that He's due? God asks Job if he can adorn himself like royalty, like God can. Is his arm as strong as God's strong? Is his voice like the voice of thunder? If he could do all that God, God can do. And of course the answer, the answer would, would be no. And can he save himself? Can he save himself? Now I think this has a dual meaning behind it. You know, certainly there is the salvation that is related to our eternal destiny or our eternal destination. There's certainly there's the salvation of our souls that we have to admit that only God can do. Now, there are some who think that their good works, if they outweigh their bad works, then they'll be saved. There are some who think that if they're a member of the right church, that they'll be saved. There are some who think that if they just tithe enough, that they'll be saved. If they give enough to charity, that they'll be saved. The Bible says there's a way that's, that seems right to man, but its end is the way of destruction. That seems right, but it isn't. It isn't according to God's plan. We can't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves ultimately with regard to our souls, and we can't, for the most part, save ourselves from some of the situations we get ourselves into in this world. So in all things, really, The lesson here is we need to depend on God, don't we? We need to fall on our face before Him. We need to put up our hands in submission and say, God, only you can do that. Only you can do it. How many times do people think that by their good works or their religious ceremony or their sacrifice that... He'll deem them worthy to inherit eternal life. There's a story here I want to close with that kind of illustrates this. And it's about this man who's a a remarkably good swimmer who had rescued the lives of many over the years. And he saw one day as he was passing over a bridge a man in the river beneath him Many were looking on at the struggles of the drowning man and listening to his cries. And people may argue about what the lost state of this sinner is, but no one who was in a drowning river would be in the mood to discuss whether he was or was not lost eternally. The realization of the position he found himself in would dispose of such arguments, but suddenly this man threw threw aside his coat, leaped off the bridge, and swam up to the drowning man. He grabbed for the swimmer and pleaded with him to be still. 
The man's command to be still was to of no avail. He would not submit himself to be rescued. And it was impossible to save the man so long as he would seek and try to help himself. What was to be done? Well, much to the indignation of the crowd on the bridge and the riverbanks, the rescuer left the drowning man seemingly to his fate, and then turned back towards him and struck him with a fist, rendering him unconscious. You heard the the people cry from the riverbank, shame, shame, but only to exchange their judgment for admiration as a few moments later they saw this strong swimmer put his hand under now this subjected man this unconscious man, and bring him safely to shore. And when asked for the explanation, he said, I couldn't have saved him any other way. Sometimes I think God has to render us unconscious, so to speak, in order for us to be open for his desire to help us. He wants to help us. Sometimes we fight against him. You know, I took... uh, life-saving classes when I was a teenager. And I remember one of the things that they told us was that many times the person you're trying to save will fight you because they think they're, they're in panic mode, right? And they'll fight against you to try to save themselves. So be, kind of be wary of that. You kind of got to get them into a, a hold that they can't fight against you. God sometimes has to do that. Kind of render us totally subjected to Him in order for Him to then come in and save us from the situations we find ourselves in. Kind of resting. Resting in His loving arms. Just like the the man would rest in the arms of the one who's rescuing him. Giving up the fight. Not trying to save himself any longer. Amen? You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.